As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hello, everyone. Eric Rivenis here. What you are about to hear is an account of the Younger Brothers' first moments of freedom in the summer of 1901, following 25 years of incarceration at the Minnesota State Prison in Stillwater. This is meant to be a companion piece to the interview I did at the Warden's House Museum, and I recommend you listen to that first. And a quick refresher, the Younger Brothers were Cole and Jim, infamous partners of Frank and Jesse James. In 1876, the James Younger Gang tried to rob a bank in Northfield, Minnesota, and failed miserably when townspeople fought back. They tried to escape from Minnesota. The James brothers made it. The Youngers did not. The account I'm about to read comes from the July 15, 1901 edition of the Minneapolis Tribune. Let's begin. Younger brothers walk out from shadow of prison walls. Coleman and James released from the Minnesota State Penitentiary with least possible ceremony. Strangeness of the world without staggers them. Like mere children, they stare and gasp at novelty. Coleman and James Younger were released from the state penitentiary yesterday morning at 10.30. The paroled prisoners attended service in the chapel. They have been regular attendants at the Sunday religious services during the entire time of their incarceration. The final sermon was preached by Reverend Father Corcoran. Immediately after the service, the youngers were conducted to the storeroom where they discarded their prison clothes and donned new outfits, which had been awaiting them for several days. Cole Younger wore a suit of blue diagonal that fitted his massive frame perfectly. Jim appeared in a suit of gray. 
Cole's 17 and a half inch collar wilted almost instantly in the insufferable heat, and he was urged to discard it, but refused. He declared that the sensation of wearing a linen collar was so novel as to be enjoyable, even with the temperature at 99 degrees. After completing their change of clothing, the two men, smiling broadly and perspiring profusely, were conducted to the warden's office, where they were met by the representatives of the Tribune. Representative Phillips had also come down to congratulate the Youngers, and Chairman Bronson of the Board of Managers was also on hand. No one, aside from the newspaper correspondents and the gentleman named, was aware of the delivery. The street outside the jail wall lay deserted in the sweltering heat. Across the road, in the shadiest spot he could find for his horses and himself, Old Mage, the oldest hackman in the state, who drove the Youngers to prison 25 years ago, waited patiently for the chance to drive them back downtown. He had haunted the vicinity of the prison for a week. There was a curious diffidence in the manner of these men as they entered the warden's room. Both stood with their hats in their hands for a moment, smiling pervasively, but in obvious embarrassment. Have seats, boys, said Warden Wolfer. Just then, Mr. Phillips stepped forward with congratulations on the granting of the long-sought parole, and the situation lost its strain. All present congratulated the Youngers, who expressed their gratitude in an undemonstrative manner, but with evident sincerity. After the conversation became general, Cole declared his regret at the public clamor that had attended their release, which he and his brother had hoped would be devoid of publicity. I want to say, while it is in my mind, said Cole, that I have never for one instant questioned the perfect good faith of Warden Wolfer in his efforts to secure us suitable employment nor have I ever at any time said or suggested anything of the character attributed to me in the Pioneer Press of Friday morning. Jim and I are content to take such occupation as Mr. Wolfer may select for us without question. Well, boys, said Warden Wolfer a few moments later, it's pretty hot. But if you would like to take a turn around town, there is nothing to prevent your doing so. Cole looked at Jim, and Jim stole a lightning glance at Cole. The psychic moment had arrived. After 25 years of imprisonment, they were free to go and come as they pleased. These men have become so used to controlling their emotions that no unskilled observer could have discerned their eagerness. Jim's face was impassive, as it generally is, 
and perhaps a shade paler than usual. Cole was red as a peony from his collar to the top of his bald head. His eyes danced with anticipation. He arose immediately, stamped on the floor a couple of times to readjust the contours of those new blue trousers and proclaimed himself ready. They passed from the warden's door to the right instead of to the left. They had not turned to the right for many a long year. Every step in that direction was a step nearer the sunshine and freedom. Yet the youngers walked slowly, measuring every step. It was too fascinating an experience to hurry over. Ten strides and they stood at the front. There lay the great outdoors, talked of in whispers, dreamed of behind steel bars, longed for with unspeakable longing by these old men for years and years and years. Over yonder lay the green wooded slopes of Wisconsin, resplendent in all their midsummer finery, a magnificent spectacle beheld by any eye with a love of natural grandeur to guide it. But in the eyes of these poor fellows, a sight so inspiring that they stopped involuntarily, just stood stock still halfway down the flagged exit and stared into the distance hungrily. Isn't it great, Jim? said Cole Younger after a long pause. Great, agreed Jim. It's worth nearly everything. Then they moved on down the sun-baked highway where heat waves radiated from the newly laid macadam and gasping humanity had made itself as scarce as possible. The spell was broken. Now the paroled prisoners were ready to enjoy their novel expedition. And how much there was to see for men whose eyes had been closed to the progress of development these 25 years. The youngers could not get the lay of the town. I never thought it looked like this, said Jim. It always seemed to me that the prison stood high up and that the rest of the town was down in a sort of hollow. It isn't a bit like what I had imagined. I have built up a town of Stillwater in my imagination that in no way resembles the reality. I shall never be able to separate the imaginary from the real, but always looking for places I thought were here that are not here. It is all very strange, but not disappointing entirely. What's all that in the river? Jim pointed to the booms in the St. Croix River, where millions of feet of lumber lay confined. The progress and present extent of the lumbering development since 1875 proved too long a story, though. Jim secured a brief explanation and then stopped again, suddenly, brought up with a round turn, as it were, by that modern juggernaut 
the Stillwater St. Paul electric car. Say, Jim, said Cole, there's one of them cars they told us about. But Jim was staring with all possible intensity at this new thing under the sun. On it came, rushing with the speed of a locomotive, tooting its air siren like a river steamer on a sandbar. Then it stopped on a corner. The youngers were impressed. They examined that car from all conceivable points of view, walking slowly round it, but at such distance as to indicate every respect for the possible eccentricities of the affair. That's the kind I was telling you about. Had a handle on top of them, said Cole. I read about them, responded Jim, still busily investigating the gears and dynamo. Let's wait till she starts. The motor near was accommodating. He gave the lever a twist. Woo hoo hoo hoo, shrieked the air whistle and off went Cole's machine with a handle on it, scuttering round a curve out of sight. The reception given by the youngers downtown was cordial, but there was really nothing fulsome in the felicitations offered. Everyone shook hands with the men and wished them happier days. The youngers responded quietly, uttering their thanks without elaboration, but nonetheless earnestly. The morning jaunt was not prolonged. It lasted only about a half an hour, but in that time the youngers saw enough to afford them food for reflection during the remainder of the day. After it became known about town that the youngers were out for a walk, there was a rush from all directions to catch a glimpse of them. This display on the part of the public may have had something to do with cutting the trip short, but at all events, the men walked back to the prison almost childishly delighted with their experience. Chairman Bronson of the Board of Prison Managers invited Cole and Jim to take a ride with him during the afternoon out on his steam launch up the St. Croix. They had lunch at the prison, dining with the officials. They have dined at the prisoner's table for the last time. Immediately after the meal, they went out on the river and were given a run that afforded them perhaps even more pleasure than the walk around in the morning. To men who had been confined so long as the youngers, and to who only exercise of a restricted sort has been possible, the mental and physical exertion of the day proved fatiguing. Both men were quite ready to rest when they returned from their tour up the river. The youngers will remain at Stillwater Prison until they have been provided with suitable employment by the warden. They are not in confinement. Warden Wolfer has provided them with apartments in the residence portion of the penitentiary, and they are free to come and go as they please within the limits of the town. 
They had been given permission by Warden Wolfer to go fishing for a week, if they so desire. But it is not certain that the men will avail themselves of this opportunity. There are innumerable offers of employment in the hands of the warden, and some of these are of an extraordinary character. One man wires from Winchester, Indiana, asking Cole Younger to name his terms to act as starter at a coming race meet. Others, entirely misapprehending the character of a parole, want to engage them as bartenders, salesmen in cigar stores, and a few large-hearted and astute businessmen are anxious to install them as proprietors of business enterprises in various parts of the state. Of course, such offers as these, while they have been placed on file, will receive no consideration in the settlement of the question. Warden Wolfer will take up the matter of employment for these two men tomorrow, and having made his selection, will submit it to the governor and the board of prison managers, as well as the state board of pardons for approval. It is not impossible that several weeks may elapse before a definite decision is reached. Meanwhile, the youngers will remain at the prison. A pathetic incident of the closing days of Cole and Jim Younger at Stillwater was the distribution by these men of their treasures accumulated during their long term of confinement. Jim had a canary bird named Dickie. The little yellow bunch of feathers was a famous songster, and for 23 years he has been Jim's constant companion in the prison cell. Only a life prisoner knows the companionship to be derived from a canary, and Jim idolized his little friend. The bird is a marvel of intelligence. Ordinarily, the sole accomplishment of a canary consists in its ability to sing in a high treble. But Jim Younger has had lots of time on his hands, and a great deal of it has been devoted to the education of Dickie. This little bird has more tricks than a marmoset monkey. When Jim says, dead, the canary drops from its perch as though shot lies flat on its back with wings extended and feet elevated. Lazy bird, get up, says Jim. Instantly, the canary hops back up on its perch. Innumerable other tricks are the exclusive stock and trade of Jim Younger's canary. While naturally a high soprano, it can utter low gutturals like a South American cockatoo and climb around on the bars of its cage at the word of command like any common cracker-eating polly. Yesterday, Jim Younger took the canary's cage off its hook and sent the bird over to Mrs. Wolfer. It was his parting gift to the woman, to whose goodness of heart and kindly feeling many a prisoner at Stillwater is indebted for happy moments. Mrs. Wolfer at first refused to accept the sacrifice, 
She insisted that Jim should take the canary with him wherever he might go. But the ex-librarian said, No, Dickie has served me faithfully and well. He has earned his release. I want Mrs. Wolfer to have him. And so the 23-year-old canary carols his morning song in the warden's dining room. Cole distributed his pipes and the trinkets which ornamented his cell for so many years among his friends in the prison. He and Jim accepted in return many souvenirs from their late companions in misfortune. I hope you enjoyed this account of the younger brother's last days at Minnesota State Prison. I'll talk to you soon.